Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. If all the ice melted, the Arctic summer ice cap perhaps by 2050, and the entire cryosphere many more millennia from now, no ruins would remain. The ice would simply transform into water or vapor. The Arctic, then, may not only be a region with an end date. One day, there could be nothing visible to mourn. In remembering loved ones who have vanished without leaving corporeal remains, humans substitute touch tones like flags or coffins. What will stand in, though, for vanished ice? A recent funeral in Iceland may provide some indication. In August 2019, dignitaries, artists, and residents bid farewell to one of the first glaciological victims of climate change, Okjökull, an 800-year-old glacier described in the sagas. During the ceremony, a small bronze plaque was unveiled. Engraved on it was a message in Icelandic and English entitled, A Letter to the Future. It read, Ok is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. August 2019, 415 parts per million carbon dioxide. Our guest today is Dr. Mia Bennett. Mia is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at Washington State University in the United States. She received a PhD in Geography from UCLA, where she was a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow, and she has MPhil in Polar Studies from the University of Cambridge, where she was a Gates Scholar. She has published extensively in both peer-reviewed journals and popular publications, and she edits a long-running blog on the Arctic at cryopolitics.com. What you heard at the beginning of the episode is Mia reading the conclusion of the epilogue of her latest article on ruins of the Anthropocene. Mia, welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast. Thank you so much, Roman and Diuba. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you tell us a bit more about your interest in the Arctic, where, where it comes from, and also why did you decide to do Arctic research? I would say I've been interested in the Arctic since at least adolescence, um, and I think a lot of my interest comes from an early fascination with Scandinavia and Nordic cultures. So my dad's side of the family, his uh, maternal lineage, he's from Minnesota, and they came from uh, Scandinavia, Swedish-speaking Finns, like so many immigrants to that region of the U.S. in uh, the 1900s. And so growing up, I just was curious about this part of my heritage. And then um, first summer in college, I went to Lund University in Sweden to study Swedish. And that was a fabulous opportunity. And uh, one thing led to another. And given that I was already interested in political science, geopolitics, um, the following summer, with some Swedish language skills under my belt, I was able to um, get a position as an intern at the U.S. Embassy in Oslo. So that was in 2008 when Arctic issues um, were really, I suppose, heating up. Um, climate change, 
concerns over oil and gas resources, those were all coming to the fore. And those were issues that um, I kind of encountered face-to-face as an MC intern. And so um, coming back to university in the fall, I, I started doing some research under Professor Larry Smith and his graduate student, Scott Stevenson. And um, I suppose now, gosh, probably 15 years later, I'm still working on researching Arctic things. So that's kind of how I got my start in the region. And it's a place that's always drawn me back. Um, I continue to be ever more fascinated by the region and just feel um, it's just such a special place that I always want to learn more about it and share what I encounter there with other people. Thanks for sharing this with us. I also see on your CV that you have a background in geography. So you you have a background in political geography. How do you apply this to, to the Arctic? And I think the underlying question in that is that we're trying to ask people how they see the Arctic via or through the disciplinary lens. So how do you see the Arctic through uh, the, the lens of a political geographer? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose... I started off in university intending to major in political science, which I ended up doing. But in the course of my studies, I became really enthralled by geography. And one thing I liked about the discipline was that I felt it had much more of an appreciation for just, um, you know, the environment, nature. A lot of the professors, they'd go out hiking and backpacking, camping, things like that, and take students on field trips in the actual field, right? So um, I thought that some of the analyses I've been reading of, let's say, um, you know, great power conflicts in the Arctic were somewhat detached from just the overwhelming importance of the sea, ice, mountains, um, animals, everything in the Arctic that is so crucial for people's traditional way of life there, um, just for making the Arctic what it is that I wanted to um, approach the region through a discipline that I think had yeah, this stronger um, recognition of the of the importance of um, of human environment relations, and so I think when I study the Arctic, um, I think one thing geography also does well is having this fieldwork approach, right? Trying to incorporate some type of ethnography, speaking to people who live in the region, rather than just having um, kind of more quantitative models, which is I think the way a lot of political science is going. And while of course those can be very revealing and have um, a place, certainly, just from my own kind of personal intellectual journey, I was more compelled by geographical approaches to understanding um, people's relation to to space and how they make place out of it, which is kind of the ultimate objective of geographers, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's always struck me that, um, I mean, both geography as a field, but also the Arctic as a field of uh, research, is very multidisciplinary. And I think it's weird to say that the discipline is very multidisciplinary, but I think geography seems to be, or geographers at least, seems to tap into those, or like a lot of of other disciplines to just make sense of their research. Why do you think this translates so so well into the Arctic as well? I think in the Arctic, um, like so many regions, I suppose, nowadays on planet Earth, um, there are just these challenges, climate change, public health, um, bringing public services like internet to places that really can only be solved by multilateral collaboration and also multidisciplinary collaboration. Um, And I think climate change, of course, makes that very clear that 
um, in order to, for instance, combat coastal erosion, you don't only need um, geologists, but also engineers and, of course, social scientists, um, people from the humanities who can bring together all sorts of different um, different forms of knowledge, different ways of thinking about solutions to ideally come up with something with the community driving that ultimately um, that will represent a solution that's locally grounded and also kind of embedded um, or driven by, I should say, the the most cutting edge science from so many disciplines, right? So I think the Arctic is really a prism for a lot of these um, planetary challenges. And I think the Arctic is also a place where there has been just a history of cooperation um, for many decades now um, between scientists from different countries. There's a long way to go still in terms of cooperation between local communities and scientists coming in from the outside. But I still think the Arctic is a kind of um, testing ground for how these kind of collaborations and partnerships can really um, provide hopefully solutions for a better way forward. Thank you. I totally agree with you. And this actually uh, leads us very nicely <laughs> to discuss in your latest article on the ruins of the Anthropocene, the aesthetics of Arctic climate change. You use the Arctic as, as you said, as the prism, this lens through which you show what um, different ideas and different approaches can be actually or should be taken towards uh, making a change. And then my question uh, in that regard would be, why did you choose ruins as an entry point? Yeah, thanks for reading the article. Um, I guess, how did I kind of come into this topic? Well, you know, first there was a, a call for papers that I saw from the, the annals of the American Association of Geographers for contributions on the Anthropocene. And that was, you know, that's, of course, such a, a formative concept to so much work in geography these days. And I wanted to try and think about the Anthropocene um, and how, with this concept, we can think about our conventional understandings of space and time and divisions between man and nature really being challenged, right? So I kind of wanted to try and apply that to a topic in the Arctic and having done some research on ruins before in the former Soviet Union and just generally being very intrigued by the aesthetics of ruins. Um, I mean, I will admit that I am a person who does like to go out and take pictures of crumbling buildings, right? But at the same time, I realized that there is something very problematic about this type of gaze and in a lot of my kind of just reading in the newspapers and such on, on, on topics about the Arctic, it seems that the whole region is often um, envisioned by outsiders as a place that's lost forever, that's in ruin. I think in that article, I, I kind of cite this economist um, article or op-ed that said that the Arctic is, you know, going lost forever, essentially. And so I, I think that those kind of narratives don't really engender any kind of um, don't really compel any action on on the part of the reader who feels almost very forlorn forlorn in this melancholic response, right? So I was trying to think about what are some other representations that might produce more proactive response in people. Um, at the same time, recognizing that all of the narratives I am kind of analyzing in this in that article are still ultimately ones coming from, you know, uh, centers of cultural production and 
within the global north and not people living in the Arctic themselves. So I think there's still a lot more space in that area, of course, for kind of um, competing narratives that I think would show that the Arctic is certainly not a place or a region in ruin at that scale and that um, there's a lot of other ways that could be more productive to depict this place in order to to kind of push for action on climate. Thank you. This is so interesting. Uh, but how how does this image of the Arctic that you say, the, the lost Arctic, right, lost forever, how does it then correspond to the, um, the Arctic, which is also often portrayed in the media or like in corporate media, for example, as the land for new opportunities, like another Tomorrowland, as it was like 100 years ago, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it, it doesn't correlate at all, right? And that's why we have this idea um, that many scholars have written about called the Arctic Paradox, that on the one hand, you have dramatic climate change in which the Arctic is warming three times faster than the global average in which traditional ways of life are being jeopardized. And yet this very process of warming melting, that's going to open these opportunities, right? So you have this very excited narrative, as you're pointing out on the one hand. One that I would say is sometimes even, um, I think, embraced by certain members of Indigenous communities, especially those working in Indigenous corporations who could stand a profit from this type of development. So I think people on the one hand, even, even the same individual could both be very concerned about climate change, but also be looking for ways to adapt. And I think maybe that's where we can see the Arctic paradox, even though I kind of just did say that it's paradoxical. It also, I think, could perhaps reveal that people in the Arctic have always adapted for millennia. There have been significant climate shifts before, although nothing on this scale in, in human history, as far as I understand. Um, but you know, even if we look back, I suppose, when people may have crossed Beringia into um, into what is now Alaska tens of thousands of years ago, there are scientific studies that show it was covered in wildflowers and it was a very kind of fertile place. And now it's much more um, kind of hard scrabble in a way, right? But so you can see that there have been these shifts that people have managed to sustain themselves, live there for thousands of years. And that's one other reason why I might want to push back against this notion that the Arctic is a region of ruin because I'm sure that people will continue to live there. They will continue to adapt and they will find new ways forward. Um, and I, I say that not to minimize the dramatic and um, often tragic effects of climate change, but just to more suggest that this idea that Arctic indigenous peoples are exclusively victims, I think is something that we should really, um, really think more about. One of the things that really appeals to me in your scholarship is that you seem to convey the complexities of the Anthropocene in a very well-written way, which I think most academics don't do. And especially, I think, in, in Ruins of the Anthropocene, there's some really good writing. And not, I mean, saying good writing doesn't quite cut it, I guess, but it flows quite well. And I'm, I'm thinking of the epilogue uh, after the ice uh, at the end of uh, your paper, where actually it is very powerful and also it moved me in a way that research doesn't tend to do. 
So I'm wondering what your writing process is like and whether you try to think consciously of, of writing about those issues in a way that both complex, but also that is narrated in a way that is understandable and that is almost flows like, like a novel. Oh gosh, thank you, Roman. That's very kind of you. Um, um, how do I respond? I suppose that I sometimes, um, I do sometimes struggle actually with writing in that I feel that my pieces may be too, um, I don't know, too much purple prose or too overly trying to be poetic or something. And I have been criticized actually in reviews for this and also criticized in graduate school by um, one of my advisors who thought that, you know, I can't just be like, a blogger effectively turning blog posts into academic articles and sometimes I feel that I'm guilty of that but um so I'm glad that you you kind of appreciate this this tone or style but um I think it's kind of just what comes most naturally to me um you know in contrast I feel that if I if when I would show my blog post to my mother she would not understand she would just be like what is this this is too wordy and highfalutin and pretentious so I think there's some kind of line in between or maybe a, a narrow audience that I can write for but um ultimately I think um you know I I guess I spend a lot of time reading publications like uh the New Yorker or the Atlantic and I think maybe that's a sort of tone that I think when I read those articles I do feel yeah sometimes moved by what they're reporting on um as obscure sometimes as it might be, they kind of manage to turn something into a compelling story. And I think I try and look for similar ways of communicating because, you know, I do feel that academic prose can be kind of dense and that um, trying to at least make it more fun to read, even if I know that my writing is still, I still need to work on making it more accessible, but maybe academic journals aren't really the place to do that. Um, but at least making it, yeah, more fun for other academics, I think that could be a start. And so maybe that's just kind of wh what my underlying goals are. But in terms of writing process, I don't really have a systematic way of writing. I kind of just sit down and write what comes to me. And then um, it's very iterative and that I go back over and over and rewrite the whole draft. So I will go from the very beginning to the end over and over so that the whole play piece does kind of flow. Um, so I'm glad it worked with that one <laughs> in your view. I don't know if it always is successful, but that maybe is kind of the best way I can outline my my writing process if there really is any to speak of. So. Well, it absolutely worked <laughs> with that Thanks. one for sure. Actually, one of the things that I appreciate a lot and um, that obviously has to do also with my own passion for the visual materials and the photography uh, is that you actually include this the visuals into your work, not as mere illustrations, but as ways of um, telling the story, almost like the equal on the equal level or on the equal basis. And I absolutely encourage our listeners to spend time um, studying them. I do think that visuals are ever more important. Uh, we live in an age where visual communication is you know, probably the main way so many people get their information, whether it's through Instagram, TikTok, I mean, even Twitter, in some sense, is quite a visual format when you compare it to its original kind of just 180 odd characters or so, 140. Now it's, um, you know, pictures, little videos, GIFs. And so I think if people are able to harness the power of an image, uh, I think that can go a long way in adding to their work, um, especially as academics, um, of course, 
still the written word is going to um, be about most important and kind of, you know, it's still, I think for academics, at least it's still a published or perished world, but um, extending that idea of what it means to publish by collaborating with artists or kind of um, finding your own inner artistic sense um, and sensibilities and, and bringing that out and sharing what you see. I mean, I think as, as Arctic researchers, all of us have such a privilege to be able to go to these places sometimes. And um, even if you're, let's say you're an Arctic remote sensing scientist who doesn't do fieldwork, you're still looking at really incredible scenes that I think um, are just very captivating. And especially when we go to the Arctic, I think we're also encountering scenes that probably are not finding their way into the mainstream media a lot, which focuses on, you know, these huge icebergs typically. So I think diversifying the type of visuals that um, circulate about the Arctic too is another responsibility that that we have if we're going to this region. And, you know, we're taking something from the Arctic. It's, it is an extractive process to take a photograph, but if you can share that somehow, tell a story about it um, and show a different side of the Arctic, then I think that's maybe some way to give back a little bit and um, kind of expand the ways in which um, people outside the Arctic are, are thinking about it. Thank you so much. I really like the idea of uh, photograph as an extractive process. I think that really gives it a very <laughs> critical turn and it's very much needed, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I thought about um, is when I was in Greenland, the number one complaint I heard from people in um, in this one village or, or settlement rather, Kakwatak, was that they would get very frustrated that tourists would come off the cruise ship and just take photographs of their children. And that was, you know, you can see how extractive and exploitative, honestly, that is. So um, I do think we need to be careful when we're photographing the Arctic, especially people, right? But there's still ways to show at least other sides of, of landscapes, of scenes. Um, and then, of course, if you have someone's consent and permission, then you can use that photograph as well. And, and then there are many other ways besides photography, many other forms of artistic expression, but that's probably the one that I engage with the most in my own work alongside the writing. Speaking of photography, we also invited you on the podcast to talk about another article of yours, which is the making of post-post-Soviet ruins, infrastructure development and disintegration in contemporary Russia, published in the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research. And in this article, you, you go on to say that there's a there's a fetish uh, with infra infrastructure uh, ruins of the of the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union. Could you elaborate a bit more on this? Yeah, I think that anyone who has some interest in the former Soviet Union will be quite familiar with all of these kind of coffee table books that I lay out at the beginning of the article. That just show, I think, you know, one of the most iconic representations of the former Soviet Union is probably some crumbling nine-story Khrushchevki, right? So I think, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's probably also why a lot of people are drawn to travel in the former Soviet Union. They want to see how a country that was so powerful and was able to just unfurl the same monotonous type of infrastructure across 11 time zones, will all of that just seem to evaporate overnight. Right? But of course, that's not really the full story. People still live in these places. Infrastructure still serves a purpose or infrastructure built during Soviet times still serves a purpose. And there are other reasons besides Soviet collapse for infrastructural ruination. And so those were some of the kind of 
uh, stories that I was trying to um, tease out in that article. How does this tie to Arctic imaginaries and especially imaginaries of the Russian North as well? That is a good question and probably one I should reflect on more. Um, I do feel that sometimes my work is a bit scattered in a way, but trying to think now, how are these how are these ideas connected? Well, maybe I can start by just um, revisiting this. Uh, I was on a, a kind of summer field school um, hosted the Kalot Academy um, run by, um, I think it was Lassie Heinen and people at uh, University of Lapland. And so they, you know, put a bunch of PhD students on a bus and we drove from Rovaniemi and then up into uh, Shirkenes in northern Norway. And in northern Norway, um, I had a chance to see the old iron ore mine, which almost looked like a, I don't know, something out of Lonely Planet where you had almost beautiful turquoise tailings pond and everything was all the tractors were neatly in a row, even though it wasn't being used. And, you know, then a couple hours later, we're driving over to Mikkel in on the Russian side of the border. And you just smell the metal in the air and you just can see that, okay, people are actually still living alongside an operating mine and it is clearly so toxic. So, you know, it wasn't exactly in a state of ruin, but the the kind of care that was going in and maintenance into making this industrial state livable compared to Norway was it was very um it was very much opposite extremes and that really struck me that you could have the same underlying minerals more or less landscape and yet the political systems could be so um so dramatically shape people's life and public health honestly and so I think ruins in the in the Russian Arctic maybe on the one hand I'm I'm continually just astonished by how actually they're still very I shouldn't say they're even ruins a lot of these settlements are productive sites of industry right the Russian north is still I guess overall it would be the most populated region and probably the largest economic sector of the entire Arctic and yet there's a lot of yeah a lot of issues that need tending to that are a result I would say of the Soviet collapse and so you know, how those tie up with thinking about the Arctic as a ruin, I'm not entirely sure, but I think there is a lot of interesting work done on kind of Soviet environmental histories that if I were to engage more with, they could probably speak to current narratives of Arctic climate change and people imagining the Arctic um, as a ruin after this sort of fall, which is a more climactic fall compared to a geopolitical collapse. But I think maybe that's something to reflect on more. Is it why you use the term post-post-Soviet ruins in, in the article? Is it to try and convey in the English language this the fall up after the fall, kind of? Or am I just mistaken in, in trying to read too much into this? No, I think what I was trying to do with that, um, there was some back and forth with the reviewers over whether it should be post-Soviet ruins or post-post-Soviet. And I think eventually, of course, as it's clear, we... we agreed on post-post-Soviet. And I think it was because within the article, I'm mostly talking about how much more contemporary processes, such as um, Putin's drive to build new infrastructure, often at the expense of prematurely cutting off um, infrastructure that has longer legacies, sometimes dating back to the Soviet Union, that were still operating, still serving a purpose, you know, up into 2010s, and then just cutting those off. Um, so I was with post-post-Soviet ruins, 
with that term trying to convey how ruination is still an ongoing process in this in Russia that is not always tied to collapse. So um, just to kind of shed light on the other drivers of um, people's marginalization, which is not just all stemming to something that happened in 1991. I really like this idea, actually, of the ruins that are the symbol of a failed development or like a political failure that can be at the same time, as you say, uh, be a symbol of the current development. But then how would you then incorporate all this ruins that are left right from the past and that are still being produced and left by current regimes and current systems? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's something that is so common in the Arctic, especially among, let's say, these narratives that circulate among high-level officials um, at conferences such as Arctic Circle, right, which is something that I do attend regularly. But, you know, you I think there's a lot of historical amnesia when it comes to the Arctic. And it seems that people believe that climate change is suddenly opening all these opportunities that never before existed. When in fact, if you go um, as recently as, let's say, the 1980s, there was a huge amount of oil and gas development um, in uh, Northwest Canada offshore that left a, a material legacy that is very problematic. There is still, um, for instance, this one oil rig that I've written about very briefly as an anecdote in an article on the construction of the highway between Inuvik and Tuktoyaktik in the Northwest Territories. So there's this oil rig that's floating in this lagoon. And um, if you were to just look at it, you might think, okay, this is terrible. It's a rusting rig. Um, it's a ruin, right? Um, so that does, you know, on the one hand, you have that kind of visual in front of you. But then if you talk to people there, you learn that actually kids will go out and row over to this rig and play on it like some sort of Mad Max playground. Um, so in this sense, you know, it's not only a ruin for them because it has a kind of contemporary purpose, if you will, but that's probably not the best type of playground for kids to be on. And so, you know, if you think about um, the kind of aftermath and afterlife of these, of this type of, of, de of former development, I think it's also, um, that's really critical for us to realize that when we talk about climatically driven development in, let's say, 2020, right, that will at some point probably produce more ruins with more impacts on people who will live in the Arctic and their children and grandchildren will too. Um, no matter how dramatic climate changes, there will still be people living there who have to contend with whatever legacies are left of the next round of industrial development. And so I think having a historic perspective to this cyclical nature is key to trying to avoid as much we can past, um, past failures. Do you think this is the way, having this historical perspective on it, to bring a local lens or a local outlook on those issues? Or do you think more should be or could be done to, to do that, to bring this very local perspective in the, into those, I guess, big geopolitical narratives of development and northern expansion in, in the case of Russia, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think local perspective is one thing that is so important to include. But even more than that, there really needs to be 
free prior and informed consent of local and indigenous peoples. And they also need to have the right to veto a project. Um, so the right to say no. Um, that, of course, is the space for that is very small within Russia. It's somewhat better in, in the Nordic countries and in North America, but still, ultimately, it's very, very hard to do. So somehow, the more political capacity um, people living in the Arctic are able to gain to contest or shape, or if they want to have these development projects, make sure that they are carried out um, in an environmental way. I think that is um, the only way to ensure that development takes place in any type of different form than before. Um, and one thing that I do find actually quite maybe worrying about this current round of development is that now a lot of corporations and national governments, they know how to talk the talk, right? They have this discourse of sustainable development, um, which often sounds like they're going to do things better and more responsibly this time. But uh, I was just reading a declaration put out by the Sami Council in 2017 last night for something I was working on. And um, they talk about how wind power is actually um, very problematic for Sami reindeer herding, which requires a lot of land and the ability to roam freely across the tundra, right? So, you know, green development often sounds very good and green new deals and things like this, but actually these pro projects can still come with a lot of negative implications for um, indigenous ways of life. And so I think even when it comes to green development, we need to be very careful about how that is approached and ensure that people who will be living alongside these projects, if they're going to happen, um, ultimately have the prerogative to oppose or influence them to be done in the way that they see fit. Yeah, exactly. And I also think it kind of, be, it becomes a security issue as well, just when we think of those infrastructure after the lifespan so when the when when a project will be will be done will be over what happens to those infrastructure and i think there's just like it is it is a big issue and i don't think fp quite gets it sometimes i'm i'm a bit i'm a bit skeptical to uh, to what extent fp can be used to to achieve that or to achieve the not only the completion of a project but a project to to the to the end and after uh, mm -hmm. and so to tie back to this not to have like ruins in a sense of ruins of developmental project not even failed project but also project that actually were successful you know i find it so interesting that we have like this discussions and talks and struggles uh, of indigenous peoples against like wind parks right and other huge um, infrastructures that just invade the space um, i sometimes think that the aesthetic appeal of this huge infrastructures that is one of the core points of modernity that as long as this is there as long as these ruins fit organically somehow beautifully <laughs> into the surroundings uh, the politics will not change that's an interesting point you raise um i haven't necessarily seen for instance corporations say that the i guess leftovers of their industrial activity will will look okay and blend in but i one one thing that, that i can remember is um a long time ago i went to tour the oil sands in alberta um, where development's been ongoing for decades. And they took us to this this a little hill with trees growing on it. And they said, well, this used to be a big tar pit with extraction. And now we've completely restored it back to normal. And you look at it and aesthetically, it does look um, 
to the naked eye like a very healthy ecosystem, a boreal ecosystem. But then I just had to ask myself, you know, is this purely cosmetic? I'm sure there's toxins buried in the landscape now. And yeah, I mean, I just have to, you just have to wonder about what corporations are going to do in these instances where there are some more regulations now about how they clean up um, post-extraction. But ultimately, at the end of the day, in places like the Arctic, it's so hard to uh, monitor and enforce these kind of rules and go in and, you know, be testing the water every few weeks, right? Um, and as activity moves ever farther north into the central Arctic Ocean and into the global commons, particularly as climate change makes those areas more accessible, the way in which, or the ability to hold anyone accountable um, will become more difficult, I think. And that's something that I think we need to be worried about is um, how to ensure any kind of responsible development in, in global commons and in the very high north. Do you think that it's possible to achieve that in the near future? I'm quite pessimistic about the ability to enforce environmentally responsible activities within, let's say, the global commons. Um, you know, there's with it's basically anarchy in the high seas, right? So countries could, or countries, corporations, whoever could, in theory, do whatever they want. But I guess one glimmer of hope might be if we look to the agreement uh, on p placing a moratorium on fishing in the Central Arctic Ocean for, I guess now it's the next 15 more years or so. And so the five Arctic coastal states plus the EU and also three non-Arctic states, China, Japan, and Korea, were able to come to the table and sign a preventative agreement. Um, so this type of collaboration is something that the Arctic has been known for since the end of the Cold War. And I think if those sorts of collaborations are able to be kept up, at least in the Arctic, then there may be some way of trying to ensure responsible development, um, at least within the Arctic Ocean. Um, how this would play out in a place like, um, you know, mining on the seafloor in, in the South Pacific. I think The Guardian just had a bit of expose on that. And it was also very pessimistic in terms of, yeah, there's basically very little that the world can do to rein in anyone who's let's say, polluting or acting irresponsibly. So it does present a lot of cause for concern. I would just like to thank you, Mia, for, for coming on the podcast and talking to us today. Where can people uh, follow you online? Where can they see your research? Yeah, thank you so much, Homa and Duba, for the opportunity to, to join you on the podcast. I'm a big fan of all the work that you do at the Arctic Institute. So um, yeah, if you want to learn more about my work, you can check out my blog, cryopolitics.com. Um, and follow me on Twitter um, at cryopolitics, same handle. And then, um, yeah, I look forward to communicating with people. You can always send me an email too. And um, happy to be in touch and hear your ideas about yeah, the best way forward um, and, and how we can kind of all work together to uh, build a better Arctic. <laughs>